0: I want to entitle this message, uh, The Gospel of Groundhog, for reasons that I hope are clear here very shortly. And brace yourself, this morning we're going to cover 13 verses. (laughs) (laughs) Ho ho! Now it's taken us six months to get through the previous 13 verses, but now we're just biting this this all off at one time. So uh, uh, be ready for this. And there's two, uh, two objectives we have in, as we're studying the, the, the word here verse by verse. We first want to say what, what, what was Luke saying to, to the people of his time and give the historical background of that. And then we want to ask the question, what is God saying to us through what Luke was saying? Okay, those two two kind of different things and that's what we do as we study the word here. So here's how it reads in the TNIV version. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord in terms of dedicating uh, their children their child, Jesus, to the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. The child grew and became strong, and he was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. And for the last few weeks, we've been talking about how this passage really emphasizes the full humanity of Jesus. He was a full human being. He learned and grew the way normal human beings learn and grow. Now, every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festive, festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. It was required, really, by Jewish law, that uh, all people were supposed to go to Jerusalem once a year to celebrate Passover. In the same way that Muslims go to Mecca, or the Jews would go to Jerusalem once a year to celebrate Passover. So that's what Jesus' parents are doing. After the festival was over, which lasted seven days, While his parents were returning home, the boy, Jesus, stayed behind in Jerusalem. But Mary and Joseph were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. Now let's pause here for a moment. As we modern people are reading this passage, we might be thinking to ourselves, what kind of loser parents are these that can travel a day through the desert and not notice that their son is missing? Crying out loud. But if you look at it in its historical context, and this is some of one of the things we want to do as we're studying the word. Uh, as we look at it and put it into a historical context, it really is not all that surprising. Couple of things. First of all, people in the ancient world rarely traveled alone, and never traveled alone if they could help it, because it was very dangerous. They traveled in caravans. Um, Another thing is that towns in those days, especially the smaller towns, were considered for the most part as extended families. They were much more open to community than we are today. They didn't have a concept of a nuclear family where the husband and wife just raised the child on their own. The village raised the children. and on top of that, we know that there are relatives in this caravan here, because uh, it says that they went among their friends and relatives. So they have this extended family. In all probability, most of the people of Nazareth traveled together for the three or four days' journey that it took to get down to Jerusalem, and now they're going back. So the whole town is going there, and, and so there's this extended family. On top of that, Jesus is 12 years old, which in ancient Jewish culture is one year short of full adulthood. And so it's, it's kind of like an 18-year-old today. So Jesus was was to a significant degree on his own, and plus, he being the Son of God and being sinless, he had been up to that point a very responsible young man. So you can understand how Mary and Joseph would have assumed that since he knows when they're leaving and all of that, that he was with the caravan. It's a large caravan, and they're traveling together, and it was only in the evening after traveling a day when the families would then get together that they realized that Jesus wasn't anywhere to be found in the caravan. So here's what happens. After three days, they went, they went back to Jerusalem, and after three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. In those days, uh, the more reputable teachers were allowed to kind of hold up, hold seminars in the temple courts, and they were open to anybody. And the the learning style was, was largely one of debate, where the, the, the students would ask the the rabbis' questions, and the rabbis would ask the students questions, then they, they debate points. And so Jesus is here for three days uh, doing this kind of debate with uh, the, the uh, teachers. Everyone who heard Jesus was amazed at his understanding. Here's a word that will become important here in a little bit, Sunasis. The idea is not, the word doesn't denote a bunch of factual, encyclopedic information, it denotes insight. They're amazed at his insight. And they were amazed at his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. Now that word is different than the word that was just used in the previous sentence, the word amazed. Uh, The word amazed is a positive word. Astonished here is more, you can almost translate it, exasperated. Like, what are you doing, young man? That's kind of reading between the lines, but that's kind of the connotation. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And the word anxious there has the connotation of anguish. Okay, for three days. This is before they had Amber Alert or anything like that. So these, these, these parents are out there searching Jerusalem for three days for their kid. Kids got kidnapped back then like they do today. So these parents are going out of their minds. They finally find Jesus. It's like, what are you, what are you trying to do to us? Driving us to an insane asylum. But then Jesus gives this very cryptic answer. Why were you searching for me? The, Didn't you know that I must be be in my father's house? And Jesus is kind of saying, you should have known this. Um, The the response is very cryptic for a number of reasons. Um, On the one hand, in the original Greek especially, it doesn't have the word house. It just says, I must be in my father's. Didn't you know I have to be in my father's? And he doesn't supply what it is he's talking about. It could be the father's house because he was in the temple courts. But it could have been, I have to be in my father's will. I have to be in my father's business, my father's plan, or something of the sort. The, the, the gist of it is Jesus is saying, you know that my, I have to answer to my father before I answer to you. And so you should have anticipated that I would be here. A second thing that's really interesting about Jesus' response is this. Um, Jesus says, I have to be in my father's blank. My father's house or my father's will. He doesn't say, as was the custom, in our father's will or in the father's will. He says my father's will. That's a very uncustomary way to talk. What it tells us is that already, at the age of 12, Jesus has grown in wisdom and understanding to the point where he is sensing that his relationship with God is different from everyone else's. God is his father in a sense that God isn't other people's father. He is the eternal son. And so you find this throughout the gospel. Jesus refers to God as my father, not just our father. Okay, then it goes on. But Mary and Joseph didn't understand what he was saying to them. And most parents today wouldn't either. But they went on. They went down to Nazareth. He went down with them. And now he was obedient to to them. So for the rest of the time, he was a very obedient son. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And that's the second time Luke has mentioned this, that Mary pondered things in her heart, really giving us the impression that Mary was a very introspective, reflective young lady. She was probably, uh, at this point, 25, 26, Um, and and, and she was introspective. It also may be an indication, some scholars believe, that Luke is here uh, indicating or hinting that the material he got here, he got from Mary, or a tradition that comes from Mary. And Mary is the one who remembered these things and passed it on. And then it concludes this section by saying, As Jesus grew up, he increased in wisdom and in favor with God and with people. And this is the area I want to focus on here. Jesus is the one sinless person in history. Jesus represents humanity apart from the fall, before the fall, before the great rebellion of Adam and Eve and on. Uh, This is what humanity was supposed to look like. And yet it says here that Jesus increased in wisdom and in understanding, which tells us this, learning, growing, gaining wisdom, gaining understanding is not simply a necessity created by the fact that we live in a fallen world. Rather, gaining knowledge, gaining understanding, gaining insight is built into the creation from the start. God created human beings from the start to do this, to gain in wisdom and understanding. Which, obviously, is why I call this the Gospel of Groundhog. How many of you have seen the movie Groundhog's Day? How many of you have seen the movie? Okay, about half of you are so. Good. Uh, it is one of the top three or four insightful movies that Hollywood has ever produced, which isn't saying much, I'll grant, but it's saying something. Uh, it is really a profound show. Uh, it, it, it says a lot about life, especially in terms of learning. Here's the story. There's a guy named Phil who's played by Bill Murray. And Phil is your classic, self-centered, patronizing, cynical jerk. Uh, he's, he's totally stuck on himself. But as it turns out, he gets stuck on Groundhog's Day. He's, he's working for Channel 9, and they have to go and cover Groundhog's Day in this town of Pasquahana, something in Philadelphia, where that groundhog comes out, and if it sees the shadow, that means there's going to have six more weeks of winter or something like that. Pasquahana, something like that. Whatever! Okay, that's not the point. You're missing the point. So he goes there and he's, he, he's, he thinks he's too important to be doing this silly stupid job so he's very cynical about the whole thing and he wakes up the next morning and he's doing the same day over again and this goes on for however long. The movie indicates that it might have been hundreds of years. He's stuck, he wakes up every morning the same day and all the other people are exactly the same but he's different. Now because he's got all this time on his hands, he learns virtually everything there is to learn about the town. He knows every fact about every person and what's going to happen and all these sorts of things. And because he's stuck on himself, he's a self-centered patronizing jerk, he uses all that information initially to his own advantage. He manipulates people with his, with his information, especially Rita. Rita's his coworker, who's kind of attractive, and he's trying to get her in the sack. So he's trying to, he learns everything there is to know about Rita in order to portray himself as sort of her perfect mate, and his objective is his self-gratification. And it never works. At the end of every day, she ends up slapping him in the face, which goes to show that no matter how much you know about a person, you can't manipulate them into true love. All right, so that's the point there. Ultimately, Phil, played by Bill Murray, starts to, de- he just despairs. Uh, this is, he's on an endless cycle. He's a, he's a rat on a treadmill. He, he's going nowhere. And he despairs of himself. He even tries to commit suicide a hundred different ways, but none of them work. Uh, he jumps off of buildings, drives a, uh, a, the, the truck with the groundhog off the side of a cliff, and he tries all these different ways of killing himself, but he always wakes up at 6 o'clock in the morning to Sonny and Cher singing, I Got You, Babe, which is a little bit ironic, because he's trying to get the babe, but he can't, which is why he's despairing. <laughs> it's a profound movie, I'm telling you. Finally, Phil begins to get it. Finally, the, the light begins to go on. Partly because he's dying to himself. He's despairing of himself, which is a very important point. And partly because he's gotten to know Rita so well, studied her so well. And Rita is a very kind, generous, loving person. He learns how to love. And as he's learning about love and that that's what life is all about and the joy of serving others, he wakes up to a million opportunities to use all the information he's got to serve people around him. So he knows exactly when the old lady's car is going to break down and he's there with a the jack. He knows when a guy's going to choke on some meat so he's there to help the guy. He knows when a lady's going to light up her cigarette so he's there with a the lighter. You know, he, he knows all the facts there is to know and now he uses it to serve people. In the meantime, he also becomes an expert piano player because he's got all his time on his hands and an expert uh, ice sculptor as well. The last day he spends, after a thousand years or so, on Groundhog's Day. There's a big party that celebrates Groundhog's Day. And, and because he knows piano so well, he's the life of the party. And then uh, all the people come up to thank him for, for what he did for them that day. And Rita's watching all of this. And now she's really impressed and begins to fall in love with this guy. She, there's a little auction, and she bids the highest price, so she gets to have him for the rest of the night as a date. Which sets up this romantic scene. Warning, there's a little kissing in the scene. Uh, but it, it's innocent enough. So, watch it. I've learned I have to give that disclaimer. Why can't I look? Because you bother me. A lot. I'm getting cold. How much longer do I have to sit here? I'm just trying to give you your money's worth. You paid top dollar for me. Wow. Well, I think you were a bargain. <sighs> Sweetie, to you say. You're probably right. Is it finished yet? Almost. I still have to put some cherry syrup on the top, and then we can eat it. Come on, Phil. I'm freezing. One second, one second. All right. Now, let me turn the light. It's amazing. It's beautiful. How did you do that? I know your face so well, I could have done it with my eyes closed. It's lovely. I don't know what to say. I do. No matter what happens tomorrow, or for the rest of my life, I'm happy now. Because I love you. I think I'm happy. We have uh, Kleenexes up here for those of you who (laughs) might need them. You know, ah, see, it's a tender scene. He'd been doing ice sculptures for a thousand years on that same day, but none of them had kind of feeling. They're just clever, but now see, there's heart in that. That that, that, that ice sculpture communicated a lot. He's a changed person, and finally, Phil gets it. Now he's happy. He's found out what happiness is about, and so now it really doesn't matter whether he gets the girl or not. he, He knows what love is, and. And it doesn't matter where he wakes up tomorrow, this moment he's found happiness. It's just, he gets it. Which is what makes this movie, at least in this respect, a gospel movie, the gospel of Groundhog Day. Because as a matter of fact, the point, the point of life is to finally get it. To gain wisdom. To learn. uh, To learn the design of creation and how life works and how it doesn't work. Um, What we're up against is this. We have inherited, really since the Reformation, Uh, a kind of truncated gospel which renders this life here and now largely superfluous. Uh, This truncated gospel basically says this, that the goal of life is to believe in Jesus, get your fire insurance, die, and then go to heaven, and that's all there is to be said about it. Everything else is kind of irrelevant which means that the here and now with all of our life experiences and the ups and downs, whatever, is really sort of just superfluous and growing in a Christ-like character and gain, gaining an understanding. And in wisdom, really is kind of ornamental, it's sort of optional, which is why we've got so many Christians today living out the sort of cheap grace just waiting to the die and they're made magically, instantaneously per- perfect. Uh, we lost the significance of the here and now. But from a biblical perspective, I submit to you, there's a much more holistic way of looking at life. That truncated view is not very compelling to thoughtful people. But the biblical view is. It's a a holistic view. This life is all about learning. We're we're being trained. We're being taught about the ways of God. And that was built into the very fabric of creation. The epic that we're in right now is all about being prepared, learning how to see things God's way, learning how to live in love, learning how to reflect God's character. He's preparing us for the kingdom that is coming. That's why you find throughout the Bible this strong emphasis on wisdom. These passages that we just read. First thing that's said about Jesus, this is the first record of of, of, what Jesus does, and the first thing it highlights is that he grew in wisdom. This is centrally important to what it is to be a full human being. Throughout the Bible you have this strong emphasis on wisdom. Many of Jesus' teachings are about being wise and not being foolish. You have a whole book of the Bible that's dedicated to wisdom, the book of Proverbs. In fact, you could read the entire biblical narrative as a narrative of education. God trying to teach human beings how to walk with Him. Paul says this about the the law, about the Old Testament. He says, the law was given as our tutor. The Greek word is pedagogus. We get the word pedagogy from it. uh, And it means to, to teach. And so the law was given to teach us, to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. What Paul is saying in this really packed Uh, profound verse is this. God has been trying to train humanity on how to walk with Him and one of the main objectives of the Old Testament is to tell us how not to do it. You can't relate to God and you can't do life holistically if you're doing it on the basis of laws. If, If you're doing the merit system, life doesn't work well that way. So the Old Testament is sort of a negative object lesson to show us our desperate need for Jesus. So we live life out of receiving grace abundantly and freely in order that we may extend life freely and abundantly to other people. That's the point of the whole thing. That's one of the reasons, incidentally, why the Old Testament looks so radically different from the New Testament. It's the difference between childhood and adulthood. God's trying to train and raise up humanity. But throughout the Bible, you find this. We are in school right now. We're being trained right now. God is trying to get us to get it, just like with Bill Murray, and he uses life experiences to train us to get it, to see things the right way, how to live outside of ourselves. He's trying to show us that it's not in our best interest to live out of self-centeredness, but rather it's in our best interest to live his way and to see things his way and to have our, our, our life conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. He's trying to get us to get it. Now, let's say a word about what wisdom is. Wisdom is about insight, far more than it's about head knowledge or book knowledge. That's why I drew attention to the word that's used of Jesus earlier in the passage. He had insight. At the age of 12, I'm sure he didn't have the encyclopedic learning that the rabbis had, but he had wisdom. He had insight. Uh, There's a world of difference between book knowledge and having spiritual or life insight. And I'm all for reading books. I think we should read more books. I like books a whole lot. People who know me know that I'm addicted to books. But, and God can use books to teach us wisdom, but book knowledge in itself doesn't equate to wisdom. Some of the dumbest people I've ever met have been brilliant in terms of book knowledge, but they just didn't have any wisdom. And conversely, some of the wisest people I've ever met have been almost zilch in terms of book knowledge. Pastor Prey in Haiti, We have a relationship with them, uh, with with his ministry in Haiti via Providence Ministries. And uh, here's a man who's got an elementary school education, but the man is wise. He knows what life's about. He he sees things from a God perspective. You don't find him chasing after a lot of the things that most people in America chase after. He's wise enough not to get caught in those traps. There's a world of difference between head knowledge, intellectual knowledge, and being wise. Most important thing I ever learned in grad school I didn't get from a book. Went over to a professor's house. He was a good friend of mine, and uh, we talked theology a whole lot, and he was helping with my dissertation. And I'd go over there once a week or once every two weeks, and we'd smoke a pipe and talk theology and talk about my dissertation and, and uh, sometimes go off into other areas. I Went over to his nice big house one time. I could tell that something was wrong. He was just not quite there, and I said, Is something bothering you? And the man then proceeded to kind of unfold his life before me. He's got a son out in California that is 30 years old and, and he hasn't talked to for a year and the son doesn't know what he's doing with his life. He's riding a bicycle all around, that's all he knows about it. And he's got a daughter who won't talk to him, hasn't talked to him for three years and never wants to talk to him again. He's got a wife who's moved out of the house and now they're as strained. And then he tells me, he catalogs in his life how decision after decision he put his career before his family and, and projects before family and then he, he says, you know, look around. I, I, his room was just wall-to-wall books. He goes, I got all this book. I got all this learning. I've got all these awards. I've written all these books. But it, over and over again, I just moved up the ladder of academic success, and now I'm paying the price. And if I had to do it all over again, he said, I'd trade it all in if I could have my family back. And then he turned to me with his pipe, and he says, don't do that. Learn. That was worth the price of a PhD right there. That, that was a PhD in life. But it really drives home this point. You can have all sorts of facts in your head, all sorts of learning in your head, but it doesn't make you wise. It took this man going through this tragic experience to gain the wisdom. He's like 65, 67 years old. And finally, he's beginning to learn about what's really important and the values that he has. He couldn't get that from a book. He, he was, had all the book knowledge, but just wasn't wise in terms of what life is really all about. One of my intellectual heroes is a philosopher named Charles Pierce, a 19th century American philosopher, I think the greatest American philosopher we've ever had. The man was absolutely brilliant. I love reading his books. He's just out of the park, park turbocharged, smart. He was one of the ones who saw most clearly that reality is structured on threes, which is a thesis I think is true, and someday I'm going to prove it. But he got it. Man, the guy's brilliant. And he was one of the first ones before quantum physics to understand that there's an element of indeterminism or spontaneity built on the very fabric of of reality. He was so far ahead of his time, a real eccentric genius. He was just smart. So I read one of his biographies, a biography on him uh, a couple years ago. And the guy was an absolute idiot. The guy... he, could, he made the stupidest decisions in his life. He couldn't do relationships. He couldn't hold a teaching post because his life was too screwed up. He was, uh, he, you know, at the end of his life, friends had to take care of him because he couldn't take care of himself. He was on you know, alcoholic and he was on drugs. and His life was just a total mess, but man, was he smart. There's a world of difference between having book knowledge and having wisdom. God wants us to grow in wisdom, and books are great, and they can teach you stuff. But God's main way of teaching us, of educating us, of getting us to get it is life, life experiences. He'll use everything in our life experience, whether it's positive, whether it's negative, to teach us, to train us, to prepare us for the kingdom that is coming so that our minds and our hearts and our lives and our attitudes will be in line with him, be in congruity with him. If our minds, if our hearts are open to it, God will use your disabled child, or your emotionally disturbed child to teach you so much about life, uh, so much about patience. If you're open to it, God will use your troubled marriage to just build in you an understanding of self-sacrificial love. Praise God. If you're open to it, God will use that ornery neighbor of yours. God will use that dead-end job that you're stuck in. God will use your own health issues, the chronic pain you go through. God will use use everything in your life, the ministry experiences that you're a part of, the tragedies that happen, the blessings that happen. In all of it, the supreme educator is trying to say, learn, grow, uh, uh, see see that life is about about living not out of your self-centeredness, but out of conformity with God. Uh, He's trying to train us to grow, to to see things His way. He'll even use our failures. In fact, I want to say He especially uses our failures to teach us, to make us wise. Our screw-ups, our stupidity, the dumb, dumb, dumb things that we do. He's saying, okay, here's a learning opportunity. Uh, learn from this. Learn from this in the same way that the professor passed on his experience to us. God's trying to say, get it. Don't be like Bill Murray on Groundhog's Day where you're every day bumping in the same wall. But God will l- use that if that's what it takes. Out of his love for us, he'll let us fall on our face as many times as we choose. All the while he's screaming, do you get it? Do you get it? Wake up to this. The Bible calls it God's discipline. You can go on hanging on to that anger all you want, but do you see that it's not working? It's not making your life any better? And God will scream uh, through the pain of, of, that you're going through to try to get you to see that it's in your best interest to release that. You can keep on making your decisions on, based on your own self-gratification. You can keep on rebelling against God, going your own way, holding the attitudes that you have. You can keep on running from your problems and, and medicating your pain with, with uh, your drugs and the alcohol and, and sex addiction or what have you. You can keep on doing that. God will let you run into the same wall over and over and over again because he loves you so much. But all the while, he's using the pain of the experience to say, There's a different way of doing life. You don't have to do life this way. It's not in your interest to keep on doing this. This isn't working for you. Let's try something different. All the while trying to get us to open up our eyes to see uh, a different way of doing stuff. God doesn't ordain that stuff, the tragedies in our life and the pain in our life, certainly not the sin in our life. But God, the infinitely wise God, uses all the material of life in this fallen world He brings a purpose and a meaning to it. Romans 8, 28, in all things, he's working together for the better, for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. And one of the blessings he wants to bring out of even our own failures and out of all the pain and all the tragedy is this. Learn, become wise, gain understanding from what you're going through. He uses it for our advantage. Now, it makes a world of difference whether you frame life as being sort of this Holding pattern, waiting station, just waiting to die and go to heaven, or whether you frame it as school, uh, kingdom schooling. Uh, when you see life just as being in a holding pattern, you know, it's biding our time until we die and go to heaven, if that's your basic lo- uh, view of life, then all of the inconveniences, let alone the, the terrible pain in life, becomes absolutely intolerable. If you see life simply as uh, a waiting stage to go to heaven, then the goal of life will be to wait it out as comfortably as possible with as much pleasure as possible which is why people then chase after all sorts of silly things trying to make their life a little bit more comfortable then the the inconveniences of life become absolutely terrible this is what led Bill Murray to despair and want to kill himself try to kill himself over and over again because life just becomes an irritating redundant repetitious affair but if you frame life as the main purpose is not our immediate happiness but our education, it changes your perspective on everything. Here's an example. Right now, I'm trying to learn Latin. I'm teaching myself Latin. Why? Because I want to read Cicero in the original, and I want to read Calcidius and Chrysippus and these other ancient authors. It's a project I'm working on. Now, I, I, I hate declensions. Can't stand declensions. I hate them with Hebrew, I hate it with Greek, and I hate it with Latin. Decl- in, in, in Latin, in English, you know what a word's supposed to, uh, the role of words, should I even go into this? You know what, uh, are you keeping up with me? A declension. A declension is the end. It's a special ending you put. A special ending you put on a word to let you know what role it has in the sentence. Uh, in English, we do that by the order of the words. But in Latin, you've just got to know the end, the ending of the word to know whether it's, you know, the subject or the object or whatever. And the kind of declension depends on the kind of verb it is, which, and also the kind of noun you have, whether it's masculine or feminine. And there's all these different kinds of declensions and all these different kinds of verbs, and it drives you nuts trying to under, learn all this stuff. And if if there there was no point to this, are you doing okay? (laughs) Woo! You got that, didn't you? You got to pray for our signer here. (laughs) What is a declension? So here's the thing. If someone was just pointing a gun to my head and said, memorize all these lists of endings, I'd be insane. I'd just be, be, it'd be absolutely intolerably painful. But see, there's a purpose to this. And I can envision that my goal is by the end of summer to be able to read Cicero. And I can just see that. And so it, it motivates me to, it, you know, it's still pretty inconvenient and I don't like it, but I, I can put up with it because I'm learning something from it. So it is in life. If you know that, that, that in every experience, even if an experience that God didn't bring about, that maybe you brought about or the devil brought about or just bad luck brought about or whatever, but God can use this experience to teach you stuff and become wise you have a totally different perspective on the experience. It's like this, if you're in a tough marriage, it's possible that some couple in this congregation right now, or listening to the radio, is in a troubled marriage where you just, like Groundhog's Day, you fight over the same things again and again, you go around that merry-go-round over and over again and it's just repetitious and irritating and redundant. It's possible someone is in a situation like that. And if you are, and you hold the view that life is just about waiting it out until you die and go to heaven, that becomes absolutely intolerable. Every bone in your body wants to bail and get out of the marriage. It's just, it's, just, it's just intolerably nasty. But if you can frame this and every other experience in your life as an educational opportunity, it totally changes things. What is God going to teach you in this marriage? It, you know, whether God actually wanted you to be in this marriage or not, you're there now, and now it's God's will for you to work it out. And so there, you, you can know this one thing. God will use, he's from the foundation of the world been anticipating this. If you're going to marry this person, here's what I can do. I can, I, I can use this experience to bring out such character in you and wisdom in you and insight and patience. Oh, the patience will be great. And he's using this as a way of, of preparing you for the kingdom that is to come. And see, that, that, that inspires you to stay in there and work at the thing. And and in all probability, the wisdom you gain from working at it will be the wisdom you can use to make it go from being a bad marriage to a good marriage, all the more beautiful because it took so much work to get there. It's now something very, very precious. How do you frame your life? When you go to school, the purpose isn't to be immediately happy. The purpose is to learn. And the promise of God is that if you learn now, like Bill Murray in the film, now you'll discover joy, which is far more deep than happiness. And now you're getting fit for the kingdom of God. What I know is this, all of us will have an experience today. We're having one right now. And in every experience, God wants to teach us stuff. The question is, is do we have eyes that are open? Are we looking for it? Do we, do we frame our life as an educational opportunity where even the pain and the failures become material that God can use to make us wise, to grow, to learn, and be prepared for the kingdom that he's bringing about